0: Now I'm happy to introduce uh, tonight's speaker, Jonathan Alter. Jonathan Alter is an award-winning columnist, television analyst, and author. Since 1991, Mr. Alter has written a widely acclaimed Newsweek column that examines politics, media, and social and global issues. The 2008 campaign marked the seventh presidential election he has covered for Newsweek. He has authored over 50 Newsweek cover stories on everything from Bill Clinton's first interview after leaving the presidency to Barack Obama's first magazine cover before he arrived in the US Senate. He is author of the national best-selling Defining Moment, FDR's Hundred Days and the Triumph of Hope, and of course, most recently, The Promise, President Obama, Year One. And if you haven't heard the news, uh, in the Senate Armed Services Committee today, Senator John McCain actually opened the book, picked it up, and read a long passage of it, asking General Petraeus if a, if a conversation cited between President Obama and Petraeus was really true and accurate. <laughs> Mr. Petraeus did not answer, but I am told Mr., uh, General Petraeus later fainted. We will uh, have an opportunity to ask Jonathan Alter uh, if it really was his words that made the general faint. Please welcome Jonathan Alter. Thank you so much for coming. My God, what a bunch of
1: policy wonks. The Lakers are on. I'm so impressed. It's just uh, overwhelming that all of you would come out tonight, and I'm, I'm grateful to you doing that I'm grateful to your TiVos. <laughs> so here's, here's um, what I want to try to do a little bit before we open it up for questions. My book tries to answer three basic questions. The first is, what happened? Now, events were moving so fast in the last 18 months that even people in the news business couldn't keep up with everything that was going on. You know, when history happens, a lot of times we don't know it. And and it's not till years later that people realize that they were living in historic times and there were major historic events going on in their lifetimes. And that was the case not just with the election of the first African-American president, but with enormous array of problems that Obama faced upon taking office and On every one of the key decisions he made, whether it was decisions to prevent a Great Depression or decisions on health care, there's always a backstory. You never really get it at the time. We're not going to know until the books come out what's happening behind the scenes right now um, with the oil spill. It's just very hard for people in my business and journalism to get it in real time. You need to wait a few weeks uh, or months before people will talk. So I wanted to do that. Then secondly, uh, I wanted to answer the question, what's he like? This is the most observed and least understood person on the planet. And so what happens when the cameras are off? What kind of a, what kind of a guy is he at work and uh, at play? And f- only in a tertiary way um, am I interested in how he did. Um, that's an assessment. That's mostly for all of you. And I, I, what I tried to do was give you more information, on which to make uninformed judgment about how he did, in his debut. I do do it myself, in various parts of the book, mostly in the epilogue. You know, I cite, for instance, um, a study done by Politifact, which won a Pulitzer Prize, uh, and they found that of his 500 campaign promises, he actually kept or made progress on close to 400 just in his first year, um, but there were a- obviously a number of, of uh, areas of uh, disappointment, uh, and we can get into that, I think, in the Q&A, but mostly I want to uh, provide enough uh, details, not just about him personally, but about these various policy uh, questions, so that historians and Americans and people around the world can come to a fuller assessment on their own. So, um, In the um, what happened department uh, and also what's he like, I thought I'd start with a a little story that involves uh, my son, of all things, my now 19-year-old son. I met Barack Obama in early 2002 in uh, Chicago, where I'm from, and I want to acknowledge that my sister, I believe, is here somewhere tonight, uh, Who, uh, along with me, grew up in Chicago. I met him uh, when we were sitting shiva for my aunt, and he was a friend of my cousin's, and he came over and he told me that day, he was a failed congressional candidate, that he was running for the US Senate, or likely to. Uh, some chutzpah there, he's just lost for the House. <laughs> he's gonna run for the Senate, okay? Seemed like a smart guy, um, and I, you know, I had some conversations with him in the next couple of years, and then in 2004, um, he gave that famous speech at the Democratic Convention in Boston and put himself on the map when he had been elected to the U.S. Senate but not yet sworn in. We decided at Newsweek to do the first cover story on him, and I, I went down to Washington from uh, New Jersey where I live and to interview him and I brought my then 13-year-old son, Tommy, with me. After the interview, Tommy said, Dad, that guy's gonna be president in 2008. No (laughs) lie. And um, I said, uh, Tommy, when you've covered politics as long as I have, you'll know that there's simply no way that he can be elected president, perhaps in 2016, but even that's long shot. And <laughs> fast forward to November of 2009 and um, this was uh, on the day before Obama's speech at West Point uh, explaining his uh, Afghan policy. And uh, I had a, in an interview with him and with Obama you get about minute thirty, two minutes at the most, of small talk before you get down to business. He's very focused on brass tacks, He's very charming in that two minutes, but the people who deal with him know that he doesn't like to waste time, and, and there's not going to be very much of it. So I knew that my small talk uh, period was short, and I came up with a, a hugely uh, creative and wonderful question to ask him as we were walking into the Oval Office. Uh, so, Mr. President, how was your Thanksgiving? <laughs> uh, and he said, oh, I, we, had a, we had a great time. You know, I... Um, I went to the Oregon State George Washington University basketball game with my wife uh, and my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law kept punching me every time the basketball game got close. And I said, you're hurting me, and if you don't stop punching me, the Secret Service is gonna haul you out (laughs) of here. And I said, oh, well, you know, my son goes to George Washington University, and he's actually going to be the assistant manager of the basketball team next year. And he goes, your son, that one that I I met, you know, he's in college already? And I said, yeah, yeah, he's just finished his freshman year. And uh, I told him a a very, you know, quick version of the story that I just told you. And he said, well, you tell Tommy two things. You say hi to him, and you tell him, he should have talked me out of it. (laughs) <laughs> and then, because he knew it was a reporter, it's joke, joke, that's a joke. <laughs> uh, but he did say uh, in the course of that interview a number of interesting uh, things, uh, which are, except that story, uh, are um, the serious part of the interview is bundled with the audiobook uh, for anybody who likes to listen to books. And one of the things he said is, you know, you know that. You've got a lot on your plate when a pandemic, an H1N1 virus pandemic, is about the 10th thing on your list of things to (laughs) confront. Um, The biggest surprise for me, I think, in terms of what I learned about what happened uh, behind closed doors was that he essentially pushed healthcare alone. Joe Biden told him the American public will give you a pass you uh, have only, uh, you've only promised to tackle this by the end of your first four years and during the campaign. By the way, he never uttered the phrase public option during the campaign. He talked about choice and competition, but that word was not used by anybody in the campaign. And, you know, the American people aren't uh, demanding this right now. Uh, Rahm Emanuel told me, quote, I begged the president not to do this. Uh, David Axelrod said he thought he should tackle energy first, which, given the news, maybe he should have. Christina Romer, the chairwoman of the Council of Economic Advisors, who got into a screaming match with uh, Larry Summers that I detail in the book, um, said, um, look, Franklin Roosevelt waited two years before he introduced Social Security, his signature program. You don't have to do this now. So I asked the president, why'd you do it? And he said, well, I told Nancy Pelosi I'd probably go down 10 to 15 points in the polls, as he did, and that uh, I might jeopardize my chances for re-election. So I repeated the question, why'd you do it in year one? And he said, "Um, because if we didn't do it now, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, It simply isn't possible to wait. It's not like he would have had more Democrats in Congress Uh, in 2010. The party in the White House always or almost always loses seats He moved forward, uh, and once he made the decision to do it, he had his people behind him uh, helping him do it. But as late as August of 2009, Rahm Emanuel was still kind of staging a week-long rebellion to try to get him to scale back the plan, insure more like 10 million instead of 31 million uninsured Americans. Uh, And by this time, uh, Obama was taking a beating politically, Uh, You remember during the campaign, he said, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Well, at the town meetings, the we didn't show up. Like uh, the uh, Obama supporters, um, uh, they thought, well, we'll elect this guy, and then then they're on Miller time. You know, they can just kind of relax, and he'll just wave his magic wand, and uh, everything will be better. And there was a kind of a naivete about the way change actually works in, in Washington and in the country. Uh, He had warned people that he couldn't do it alone, but there were a lot of his supporters who kind of thought he could. So when uh, Democratic members of Congress, you remember, when they go to these town meetings, even in Democratic districts, the only people who showed up were Tea Party people and other conservatives. Very, very few liberals showed up to not all, but most of those meetings. So at this point, he's he's kind of down in the polls, and uh, Emmanuel says to him... uh, remembering that Obama carries around some lucky charms in his pocket that he got on the campaign. He says, so you still feeling lucky, Mr. President. And Obama says, my name is Barack Hussein Obama, and I'm sitting right here. So hell yeah, I'm feeling lucky. <laughs> <laughs> he moved forward with with his health care plan. Uh, but it, it was really the, uh, you know, and then later he would have to say, he took a little shot at Clinton. He said, uh, you know, I wasn't. Uh, We weren't, he said, I wasn't sent here to do school uniforms. You know, I'm here to do big things. Uh, Now, some things got screwed up by, uh, I've got an interesting scene with Henry Waxman and and Obama about moving health care versus energy. In his speech tonight, he talked about, he made reference to Waxman's bill, which passed the House. Waxman did an amazing job getting uh, a climate change Energy bill through the House, but it you know it it got nowhere in the Senate, and uh Obama had wanted him to do health care first. there were some indications that by doing energy first he was slowing down health care and so there's a whole kind of congressional story there on the way the whole thing got slowed down that was terribly damaging to Obama politically. It was all built for speed it was supposed to get done by last summer, the end of last summer. And once the focus shifted to Congress from him, Congress, you know, is the sausage factory. Like, making laws is like making sausage. And the sausage factory stunk so bad that it kind of spoiled everyone's appetite for the meal. If you remember, all the conversation was about uh, the Cornhusker kickback and, you know, this deal, that deal. And then the the crowning, what seemed to be the the death blow to health care was the uh, election of Scott Brown in Massachusetts for Ted Kennedy's seat, and Martha Coakley, the Democrat, had been way up in the polls by 17%. And there were some indications that the polls were tightening, but she was still expected to win, and around that time, Obama walked into David Axelrod's office. Obama likes to kind of govern by wa- management, by walking around, you know, and he's he's always in and out of people's offices, uh, One of his top aides is a guy named Pete Rouse, who um, is not very well known publicly. It's Rouse, Valerie Jarrett, Rahm Emanuel, David Axelrod are the big four aides. And um, Rouse is so unassuming that he stayed home uh, and watched the inauguration on TV, even though he could have stayed in the front row. He hates to travel, and Obama jokes, he so hates to travel. Pete won't even travel down to visit me in the Oval Office, so I have to go to his office. (laughs) This day, he wanders into Axelrod's office. And uh, Axelrod is reading the Boston Globe online, and he reads to the president a line that says, uh, when asked why she wasn't meeting more voters, Martha Coakley said what? Stand in the cold, shaking hands in front of Fenway Park? I don't think so. Now you know, Dodger Stadium is very popular, and people have fond feelings about it. But in Boston, in Massachusetts, Fenway Park is a shrine. People pray there. You know, and Obama knew instantly that that his dreams had been shattered. Now they were able to put it back together. But he uh, he grabs Axelrod by the shirt, and he says, "Tell me." She didn't say that. <laughs> Tell me that's not true. People think he never gets excited or agitated. That day he was. But generally he has this cool, calm, collected uh, demeanor. Uh, Paul Volcker told me, you know, sometimes I feel like shaking the president. and saying, get excited about this. Uh, and you may have heard him tonight. He was trying to introduce more of a note of, uh, of excitement into his voice. Um, and... I was very struck by um, what he, the way he runs a meeting, and that a lot of people who know him say his great strength is not giving speeches; it's running a meeting uh, with a kind of a Socratic dialogue where he drills down a mile down into the <laughs> into the subject uh, in a very methodical way. Uh, so I have a whole chapter. Um, well, I have a chapter on what I call a Zen temperament. Um, and, uh, and a chapter that I call The Un-Bubba that compares him to Bill Clinton. <laughs> I didn't think the comparison to George W. Bush was as interesting, uh, <laughs> it was a little too easy. Um, and his temperament, you know, when Franklin Roosevelt was inaugurated, he went over to Oliver Wendell Holmes's 92nd birthday party a few days after he was sworn in in 1933, and they drank some bootleg champagne which I always found interesting that the president was doing, new president was doing that. Can you imagine, Obama, a few days after he's sworn in, goes over to Justice Breyer's house to smoke some weed. <laughs> uh, uh, um, um, when he leaves, Holmes famously remarks, 2nd class intellect, first class temperament," and. That was the classic uh, description of FDR. Uh, Obama has a first-class intellect. Having written a book about Roosevelt, I know that Obama is, in an IQ sense, he's smarter than uh, than Roosevelt. But we don't really know yet whether he has a first-class temperament, a public temperament. We know that his private temperament is uh, what you want. Uh, you know, he gets calmer when the situation gets worse, um, and he. He pulls emotion out of the equation when he's making decisions. I think people sensed that about him in the fall of um, 2008, especially in contrast to McCain. I still can't quite believe that McCain today was quoting my book because I just trash him in the first chapter. <laughs> uh, you know, he seemed very erratic and uh, with uh, the wrong temperament for the presidency, and I think a lot of it. Uh, That might be, maybe he skipped ahead to the Afghanistan (laughs) chapter, (laughs) decided not to read the beginning. Um, But uh, Obama just seemed um, to be a uh, a very welcome, uh, temperamentally well-suited, and he surrounded himself with Volcker and Buffett, people who he didn't talk to in 2009, Yet his public temperament has been a puzzle uh, because while it made sense to pull a motion out of the private part of the presidency, he needed and continues to need to put it back into the public part of the job. And When he said recently that the presidency is not a theater, this isn't theater was his quote on the Today Show, I thought he was exactly wrong. It's always been a theater, it always will be a theater. And, uh, he hasn't quite found the right key in which to connect to the American middle class. I think that was a problem for him during the campaign, and it continues to be uh, a challenge for him. Um, his speech tonight said all the right things, but once again, he disdained the use of uh, sound bites. He considers sound bites, talking points, to be an insult. Uh, and I, uh, In the chapter uh, that I call Professor-in-Chief, I, I try to explain how um, this is hurting him. What uh, was the only thing we have to fear is fear itself? It was a soundbite, or uh, a house divided against itself cannot stand Abraham Lincoln. Soundbite. You know, people remember catchphrases, metaphors, things that stick in the mind. There's nothing wrong with a president using those uh, to try to uh, connect. Otherwise, his speech has become kind of uh, elegant, fast food you know they they sound great, um, but they wear off pretty quickly um, and He gave some very important speeches in two thousand and nine, particularly the one in Cairo. his reaching out to the Muslim world uh, was fascinating, and uh, I try to explain how that happened. but um, there was a missing piece in his relationship with the American people, and uh, he wasn 't uh, able to persuade public in general, that he was leading the country in the right direction. He stayed very popular anyway, relatively popular compared to most presidents and I think mostly because um, he might not be any more authentic and psychologically healthy than the average person, but he's clearly more authentic and psychologically healthy than the average politician (laughs) and that something about that comes through. Um, That health... um, can make him um, uh, less sensitive to the dysfunction in other people. Um, And because he's not needy himself, he doesn't quite understand that congressmen are really needy, the American public is really needy, and that he, and so uh, uh, it it becomes uh, an abstraction for him um, to connect uh, at that level. And you remember, you know, Clinton, famously was able to, you know, I feel your pain, and and to a certain extent, the American public expects that, and Obama has some trouble with that because uh, uh, I don't think it's because he doesn't feel people's uh, misery. Um, you know, he since the time he was in college and applied to be a community organizer, he's had a very well-developed social conscience. Um, but, uh It was interesting, Michelle Obama told a friend, uh, Barack spent so much time alone as a child, sometimes I think he was raised by wolves. (laughs) And he became so independent, and uh, he had this really, I think, good combination of intense love, but also some benign neglect by his mother and his grandparents um, that he did kind of raise himself, and that made him a lot less uh, needy. Um, And it also meant that he doesn't have to work out his ego issues and his, uh, his uh, you know, his. his there, there aren't issues that get between him and other people. He's not working out ego issues in his relationships with other people, which saves a lot of time. Um, and it means that he doesn't uh, rip anybody. Nobody who's ever worked for him can remember a time when he just ripped into somebody the way so many politicians and bosses. Uh, tend to do, Um, uh, whereas Bill Clinton, and I spoke to many people who worked for both men, uh, would pretty often have what they call purple fits, um, where he would just be really screaming at somebody. It happened to me once when I uh, asked him in the presidential limo outside Hartford in 1999 if he was seeking psychiatric counseling for his Monica Lewinsky problem, and (laughs) he started he started yelling at me, you know. So, I can't believe you're asking that question, John. I just can't believe you're asking that. And then he calmed down and then what happened with me was that he then, uh, as Gregory said, he gave me the first uh, interview that he, he gave after he left the presidency. And with his staff, you know, they would know they were back in his good graces and he'd say, you know, I love you, man. You know, they'd know they were back with him, right? <laughs> So that was the, but with Obama, he's not yelling at you, but he's also not giving you that warm embrace afterward. So you're not always sure where you stand with him, um, and it's more of a mystery and has this detached quality. Uh, And um, uh, showing gratitude is, uh, again, it's kind of learned behavior. He knows he needs to do more of it. Um, But the temperature is kind of a consistent sixty degrees, Um, and it's not cold. He's he's not a cold man, Um, and it's not really chilly. It's just cool, and everything about him is cool. He was cool in high school, and he's cool now, even as as it's his time in the barrel. Um, And you know, they do have some fun. They I have a picture in the book. They're tossing a football in the Oval Office, and you know, they're. It's not all business, but generally, he's a a crisp executive, very decisive. They called Bill Clinton the second-guesser-in-chief. And and Obama um, makes much bigger decisions in much shorter time, most of the time. Uh, So whereas with Clinton, they were arguing, the stakes are just a lot higher. And with Clinton, they were arguing uh, over uh, a $16 billion stimulus. With Obama, it was a $787 billion stimulus, and Clinton's stimulus didn't go through. the Obama stimulus was probably the least appreciated major major piece of legislation in recent history. It was really five or six major pieces of legislation in one. Uh, the biggest uh, infrastructure bill since the Highway Act of the '50s, biggest education bill since uh, the 1960s, biggest energy clean energy bill ever. Um, The uh, biggest tax cut, $300 billion in tax cuts, which he made the mistake, he played bad poker with the Republicans, of giving up at the front end of the process, Uh, biggest tax cut since before Reagan, and doubling medical and scientific research funding, and a lot of other things that didn't get noticed because it went through so fast at the beginning of February of of 2009. And of course, the health care bill, when it was finally signed in March of this year, Uh, was the uh, largest piece of social legislation uh, in 45 years since Medicare and Medicare were passed. Um, And there were a lot of liberals who were disappointed in it. Obviously, conservatives wrongly called it a government takeover. It was really the kind of Howard Baker, Bob Dole bill. It wasn't a government takeover. It left the private insurance system in place. Uh, So there were distortions. Um, The liberal concerns, I think, they reminded me of a lot of the liberal concerns uh, when Roosevelt put through Social Security. It only insured forty fewer than 40% of senior citizens. It was a thoroughly racist bill in 1935. But Roosevelt, like Obama, figured you've got to start somewhere with major legislation. And uh, one of my chapters is called uh, The Perfect and the Good. Obama kept saying, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. But I do think that... Um, in his advice to liberals to um, accept the world as it is, not as we want it to be, and and get half a loaf and uh, be practical. Uh, he didn't take his own advice, or hasn't been taking his own advice enough when it comes to media relations. Um, and he needs to deal with the media world in Washington with all of its stupidity as it is, not necessarily as he, he wants it to be. Uh, and, uh, so I think he's struggling with that um, and trying to figure out how to respond when people tell him he needs to do this or that in his in his public presentation. Um, I want to uh, just finish with a couple of other stories about what happened uh, behind the scenes. Uh, the um, uh, reference to John McCain and the testimony today w- came from a a chapter called Chaosistan, um, about this enormously deliberative process they had last fall. It was the uh, most deliberative process on a foreign policy national security issue since JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Um, They had 20 hours of meetings. Um, Obama and Biden played good cop, bad cop. Uh, Hillary Clinton, Um, who has generally a good relationship with Obama, Uh, in this case was very much on the side of the Pentagon. She wanted a longer, open-ended, 10-year counterinsurgency commitment. Uh, Biden wanted very few troops um, and uh, more use of predator drones to go after Al-Qaeda. And Obama didn't show his cards for many days and, and pursued what I thought was a really thorough process pretty much almost exactly what you would want in a president now i have my doubts about the decision that they came to and a good process doesn't necessarily assure the right decision but a good process is certainly preferable to a sloppy or non-existent process and in both the vietnam war and the iraq war and this is unbelievable but true they never actually surfaced the assumptions and key issues for debate they slipped into war inch by inch by inch So Obama said to me, I wanted to slow the whole thing down and really analyze it in these 20 hours of meetings. But it turned out that there was this drama unfolding behind the scenes where you may remember that uh, General McChrystal went on 60 Minutes, and he talked about the McChrystal Plan, which was what Hillary Clinton basically supported. Counterinsurgency commitment. Be there for a very long time. and other interviews, he said the same thing. This was before they'd made a decision. The process is still underway. And here's the commanding general saying this. Then the, the White House makes it clear they're not too happy about this, and McChrystal goes to London, and in the Q&A after a speech there, he's asked whether he can support what's essentially the Biden plan. Very few troops, a uh, use of Predator drones. And he says, in a word, no. Back in Washington, in the White House, they're going, wait a minute, let's get this straight. The commanding general says that if the president sides with the vice president, he cannot support the policy? There's a word for that, insubordination. So Obama is over in uh, Copenhagen trying and failing to get the Olympics for Chicago. <laughs> Finished third. He gets, when he got back, uh, his aide said, did you really have to go? And he said, yeah. Michelle would have killed me if I hadn't gone. (laughs) She was trying to run the the operation. Um, And he summons McChrystal from London to the tarmac, and they have a meeting there. There's a photograph of it. Um, And in the meeting, Obama decides it's not McChrystal's fault. He's a good man, tough soldier, the guy we want over there. And not incidentally, they just fired General McKiernan a few months earlier, and he wasn't going to sack another General, although Joe Biden clearly wanted somebody's head to roll, Uh, but when he gets back to Washington, he summons Admiral Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he dresses him down. And he he says, you know, uh, I need to know here and now that you will support the policy. This behavior, because he blamed Crystal's superiors. This behavior is unacceptable. It does a disservice to our men and women in uniform and to our country. Uh, and I need to know that it will stop and that you understand that this is not the way to do business, to box in the president. When I asked him, I said, Mr. President, were you jammed by the Pentagon? His answer was, I neither confirm nor deny that I was jammed by the Pentagon, right? So we know what that meant. And McChrystal left the meeting chagrined, uh, and they did, he and Robert Gates and others gave speeches saying the general's advice to the president should be confidential, um, uh, especially before the policy has been settled on. Then the policy he settled on was quick in, quick out, and what McCain was referring to today in his questioning of, McChrystal, of uh, Petra, General Petraeus was that Petraeus and McChrystal and Mullen and the others in the Pentagon told the president that they had the troops with, this, with the Afghan surge that they needed, to accomplish the mission, and he asked them specifically, are you gonna be coming back and asking for more? Uh, uh, and if you, if you don't think that you've got what you need to complete the mission, tell me now. And they said, we've got what we need to complete the mission. So the reason that McCain brought this up today in, in congressional testimony is that things are going badly on the ground and they probably will ask for more troops. As Obama told me, the Pentagon always wants more troops, and there's never been a time in war where the military has said to the head of state, oh, we need fewer troops. Uh, That just doesn't happen, and Obama's wise to that, and determined, despite a loophole of changing conditions on the ground that Secretary Gates requested, determined to begin to withdraw next year. Now the basic argument will be, well, uh, you know, if if the insertion of these troops this year didn't work, why will more troops work? <laughs> uh, it's obviously not the size of the troop force that is t- determining our success or lack thereof in the region, um, and they've had a lot of problems uh, in the uh, six months since these meetings that we can talk about. But I got very interested in the way they made this decision to go to war because the economy, which we haven't had a chance to talk about too much, and and Afghanistan will determine, and and the BP spill will determine his political fate uh, going forward. So um, on the economy, um, I am hard on him uh, for not using his leverage over the banks more in early 2009 when he had that leverage, and I think what we're getting now is Better than nothing, but it's, it's fairly weak tea. Um, but he, like Roosevelt, turned out to be right in resisting the pleas of the liberals like Paul Krugman and others who wanted him to nationalize the banks. So sometimes a key decision is what you don't do. By not nationalizing the banks, we prevented uh, some bank runs and we saved about a trillion dollars and it turned out it wasn't necessary. And the TARP money has almost all been repaid, all, almost all 700 billion of it, has been repaid. The auto bailouts went much better than anybody had any reason to expect. So there were, number, and there were a number of other pieces of legislation on national service and other things that went through in 2009 that got almost no notice. FDR put 250,000 young people to, uh, to work in the Civilian Conservation Corps in 1933, and it had tremendous publicity. Obama put 250,000 people to work in AmeriCorps in 2009. Who knows about it? Nobody. Right, So some of this is what gets covered, what doesn't get covered, what people think of as important or not. And this is a source of real frustration uh, for the president. Uh, one of the more memorable parts of that November interview was um, he was reflecting on his trip to Asia, and he said, uh, you know, uh, the president of South Korea, his biggest concern is that there aren't enough English teachers for... Uh, English to start in first grade instead of second grade. The parents are in an act of rebellion and want him to import thousands more English teachers so their kids can start learning English at age six instead of age seven. He goes, this is what we're up against, right? This is what the future holds for us in the global competition. And uh, he says, then I come out of that meeting with him and all the American press wants to know is, have you read Sarah Palin's book? And then he shakes his his head, you know, he's sitting in front of that fireplace you see on TV, shakes his head. True story, true story. And you could tell that he was just disgusted by the lack of seriousness. But that disgust isn't really going to take him anywhere. He needs to adjust to it and adjust to the world as it is uh, and uh, make sure that that irritation doesn't show through. Um, Finally... uh, a return to Copenhagen for the climate change conference, which was draped in failure when Obama arrived. And uh, because Congress hadn't acted on climate change, uh, they couldn't have another kind of Kyoto-type agreement. There were not gonna be the limits on carbon emissions that so many people had hoped for. They tried to salvage something by at least having the first transparency so that the Chinese and other developing nations would finally be forced to at least disclose their carbon emissions, and that was what Obama and Clinton were hoping for. Um, and uh, So Obama wanted to meet with Premier Wen of China, who he had seen on that Asia trip a few weeks earlier, to move forward on this. Finally gets a meeting after a lot of back and forth, um, and the advanced people go into where the meeting's supposed to take place, and they see that Premier Wen, uh, Prime Minister Singh of India, who was supposedly on his way to the airport because the conference had been such a failure that he was gonna leave, but he's meeting in there secretly with when Lula of Brazil and Zuma of South Africa, the developing nations, are meeting without the United States. And Obama says, well, let's just crash that. So they just walk right into the meeting. Obama says, oh, no chairs, huh? Okay, yeah, here's one. Here's one near my, my friend Lula. Hey, Lula, how's it going? He pulls up a chair and Hillary is there with, and there are a couple of aides. None of this, by the way, came out at the time until, until, the, uh, until the book. Um, and he says um, they have an, about a 90-minute negotiating session and they get down to the short strokes on this registry so at least the world can know what the level of carbon emissions is from various countries. Uh, And uh, suddenly, um, uh, Minister Xi, the Environment and Energy Minister, who when Obama crashed the meeting 90 minutes earlier, had screamed at him in a mixture of Chinese and English, out, out, and Obama just ignored him. And now, at the end of the meeting, uh, Minister Xi starts screaming, not at Obama, but at Premier Wen. In Chinese, and uh, everybody, the heads of state, you know, look at the interpreter. And uh, just then, Premier Wen says something in Chinese to the interpreter, and the interpreter says, "For internal use only, <laughs> internal discussion only." And at that point, Obama goes like this: He says, "I'll take that to mean we have an agreement," and he hikes out of the room. The Chinese had to live with it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so sometimes he uh, can decide things with um, with dispatch. Um, now, where do things go from here? All I can do is speculate. Uh, I don't feel like I have any kind of crystal ball. We're always asked what's going to happen, and it's like predicting the stock market. We don't know. Um, and so I'm much more uh, interested in, uh, in you know, telling X-rated Rahm Emanuel stories from the past than trying to predict, you know, will Rahm Emanuel leave after the election and all the kinds of things that normally get asked. Um, because, you know, I had this sense that um, history is uh, happening around us and that I could at least try to write history on the fly. Uh, the uh, owner of Newsweek, from many years, since the early 1960s, and it's now on the block, but uh, the owner, Phil Graham, uh, called journalism the first rough draft of history. And I think there's a place for a second draft um, that's written in close to real time as possible. Uh, And that's what I attempted uh, to do, but with, um, I hope, uh, the modesty to acknowledge that neither my perspective nor anybody else's has yet been deepened by time. So there are a hundred ways for Obama to fail, but he's a gifted uh, individual and a more successful president, I think, than many acknowledge. Um, And I think we uh, underestimate him at our peril. Uh, So with that, I w- would love to uh, answer any of your questions, and thank you so much for coming tonight.
0: My name's Norman Colpus. One of the criticisms you hear the right-wing media uh, leveling against Obama fairly regularly is uh, how he practices Chicago backroom politics as usual. And as a Chicagoan, uh, do you yeah. think that is true? And whether or not it is, do you think it's the answer is a good thing for him or a bad thing?
1: My mother was the first woman ever elected in Cook County uh, in 1972, and um, uh, nobody exceeded her in integrity and honesty that I've encountered in public life. And it reminds me of something that uh, Obama said when Rod Blagojevich went down. And you know, I've had a lot of fun over the years covering corrupt Chicago politicians. Um, He said, "There's, you know, there's two reasons people go into politics: to make money." Or for public service, and you can make a pretty clear distinction, especially in Chicago, between those two. So I'm a little sensitive to this idea that you know there's a Chicago style. I mean, Obama was not part of the machine; he was what was called a blue ribbon candidate, like Adlai Stevenson, and you know others who uh, are uh, put up by uh, the regulars. Um, but he does have, um, and by the way, um, David Wilhelm, who was. Uh, head of the democratic national committee for a while in the 90s when he went back to chicago he said i'm glad to be back in chicago where they stab you in the front Uh, (laughs) and um so you know i i believe that any good president is a good politician lincoln was a fantastic kg politician and i and so you have to cut deals. Like people getting mad about this Joe Sestak that they offered him some non-paying commission if he wouldn't run for the Senate. I mean, George H.W. Bush's political director, Ron Kaufman, said if that was the standard, every president would be in jail since George Washington. You know, So there's just certain things about politics that are short of corruption that I don't have a problem with. Um, and Obama felt that Deal cutting was essential if he was going to put points on the board, as he calls it. If you're going to actually get something done, you can either make a lot of speeches and throw punches so your supporters are gratified by your gestures, you know, and, oh, good, he decked that guy. Yeah, that's why I like Obama. He decked somebody. Or you can actually try to cut deals and and get things done, you know. And if you're going to cut deals, yeah, you're going to be political, Um, And so I want more of it my problem with Obama is in some ways. He wasn't Chicago enough and that uh, you know, for instance, they screwed up uh, when they Fired uh, the president's counsel Greg Craig Um, They uh, you know, they never learned how to properly dispose of a body You'd think that they would be able to do that they have coming out of Chicago, right? It was it was messy. It was like really messy and, you know, they secretly offered him a judgeship, and that didn't work, and they, they couldn't ease him out. Um, and so, um, I, you know, I uh, tell a lot of Rahm Emanuel stories in the book, um, but I basically think, uh, I don't know, are there any kids here? I mean, it's all, it's all every, every one of them. This is a guy who, when he came uh, to Washington with Bill Clinton when he was a young aide in his 30s, and... Uh, and uh, Tony Blair, the prime minister, comes over on a state visit, and before he and Clinton go before the cameras, Rom sticks his finger in Blair's face and says, don't fuck it up. Uh, and, you know, the chapter I have uh, about Rom starts with, I'm going to kill that fucking dog. He's talking about Bo, the dog, because he's, he's off message. They said he'd be a shelter dog, you know, mixed breed, and and it's a purebred Portuguese water dog. The president's wasting all his time cleaning up his shit, you know. And so, rom is rom uh, is an acquired taste. But basically, that that deal making that you're talking about, that's how they they get things done. And and uh, I'm glad that they do. I'm a big fan of your writing and when you appear on MSNBC, but. Um, I've detected a disturbing pattern in how Obama has been dealing with his campaign goals. And not to uh, be too uh, deferential to the Lakers tonight, but it seems that he comes out and plays to win, but then quickly plays not to lose. Is that Uh, a fear that is well-founded, or is that simply uh, the way
2: it appears, but not what really happens?
1: it's a great question um i, I think uh, you could you could on any particular issue, you could say, well uh he should have pushed further on this or that point uh you know I think that he could have uh earlier on maybe uh done you know been more assertive uh um, with the banks, but the example that most people use is health care and you know, the, the truth is that they just didn't have the vote. So for him to say, all right, I'm going to play to win, single payer, you know, would that be what you would consider playing to win, you know? They wouldn't have gotten it, and they haven't for 75 years. So sometimes the only way you can win is playing not to lose, I think. Um, but having said that, I think that on, on the BP story, he needs, and he did a little bit tonight, to take the offensive. And not he was on defense for the last six weeks, and that was a terrible place for him to be politically. Whatever he was doing substantively, um, and so he started to go on the offensive tonight. And I think that uh, he arguably should have done more of that. Um, uh, he he should have uh, given a speech leaning, leaning on the banks, dictating terms to them the way the IMF would with a foreign banking system in crisis in the early part of 2009 when he had his foot on their necks. He did it in some areas like on fuel economy standards. You know, When the auto uh, companies were flat on their back, he imposed fuel economy standards. Um, But he he doesn't always press the advantage, as you say. Um, I don't think it's because he's naive or too cautious or doesn't want to do big things, um, but he also doesn't want to leave empty-handed. And... uh, He's not, this is something that's so hard for liberals to understand. He's not into gestures. He's not into making you feel good that he took the right position on something. He's into making it happen. So on something like gays in the military, I think there are a lot of people who think that uh, you could just sign an executive order like Harry Truman. Okay, that's the end of that policy. We elected Obama. Why do we still have to have this ridiculous don't ask, don't tell policy? It's a law. It can't be done with a stroke of the pen. He has to figure out how to get Congress to repeal the law, and the only way he can do that is by getting the Pentagon to run cover, for, you know, to, to cover for him. Um, and if he had done that right out of the box, the way uh, some gay rights activists wanted, it would have been like Clinton. He would have gotten chewed up um, because the Pentagon wasn't willing to come along. So you could say on that issue, well, he's too cautious. But I think he's he's always. His friend Marty Nesbitt talks about this Rubik's Cube in his brain. You know, he is trying to play, or 3D chess sometimes they call it. He's trying to think a few moves ahead. He doesn't always succeed. He makes mistakes. Maybe we haven't talked enough about those mistakes tonight. There are plenty of them. But, um, I, you know, I think in general, he's, uh, uh, he's right to be pragmatic um, in, uh, in the way he tries to get things done.
0: My name is Quentin Cluth. I think you partially answered this already, but I wanted to ask what your thoughts were so far on his handling of the, the Gulf oil crisis. And maybe since you sort of mentioned a little bit the political dimension, if, if you know anything about sort of the, the content, is there, is there sort of content to support the, the growing public uh, sense that, that, that his administration hasn't been handling this well?
1: Well, I, I, I think he was, uh, his political reflexes in May were way too slow uh, you know, he went down there on May 2nd, but um, he, he just seemed, uh, he wasn't communicating to the public um, the amount of time they were devoting to it internally, which was a lot from an early point. Uh, and he didn't make it clear early that BP would be paying for everything. That was a note that he sounded very, very clearly tonight, but he needed to be making that clear weeks ago. Um, because I think people genuinely, you know, were wondering, are we going to be footing the bill for this? Um, you know, on a substantive level, he's not Aquaman. There's nothing he could, he can't. As he said, uh, he was picked up on a tape uh, yesterday or today, saying, you know, I, I can't like dive beneath the waves and seal this thing by myself. I don't think the technology exists in some place that they didn't look. But on the cleanup. Uh, it may and protecting the shoreline. Uh, I think he could have taken Bobby Jindal's suggestion earlier on the the berms, the um, the barrier islands, which he's now embraced. Um, but he uh, he has a weakness sometimes for experts. With all due respect to Rand, you know, with uh, people that people that um, I call policy mandarins. These are really really well educated, smart people, and they've they've uh, had experience in government, but. As LBJ said, I wish just one of them had run for sheriff, you know? <laughs> and, and so, sometimes, so he, he, you know, sometimes he needs to kind of cut through the experts faster. And uh, he needs more people around him who've met a payroll. Um, he just tonight hired a guy na- named Mike Bromwich to run the minerals management service, who's a kick-ass lawyer. I know him a little bit, and that was a really good hire. So, we'll see, they were slow in, in, they cleaned house in the Denver office where they were literally, not figuratively, literally sleeping with the oil and gas people in the Denver office of the Minerals Management Service. So they cleaned that up early on, but they did not do a thorough house cleaning. Um, and I think they've also politically missed an opportunity to make it clear that those people who want, uh, who, that deregulation should be considered now a dirty word. You know, in the in the Reagan years, it was a, a positive word, and now in the Obama years, it must be stigmatized as a dirty word, because that that's what killed us on Wall Street. That's what led to the disaster, and and that's what uh, let this happen. There was no redundancy. Their their inspections were pathetic. They were granted waivers up the wazoo. They didn't have to have any kind of effective uh, contingency plan for a spill, and. All of that, obviously the primary responsibility is is BP, but the secondary responsibility is the government's. Um, So I think he's moving, he's he's doing the right thing substantively, but he's made a hash of it politically.
2: Hi, I'm Lauren Steiner. As one of those liberals that is (laughs) disappointed with Obama not going far enough, I want to comment on something you said and then ask my question. As far as the public option goes, you know, there we say the perfect is the enemy of the good. The perfect would have been single payer. If he had started with single payer, he could have settled on the public compromise yeah. on the public option. 60% of people in polls, all week, when it was explained to them what it was, wanted the public option. You know, there were 44 senators that signed Michael Bennett's letter and you know, the whole progressive caucus. I think it could have happened, but David Kirkpatrick in The Times reported that he compromised that away last July with the, with the insurance industry. Now we have financial regulation and we have the Merkley-Levin amendment, the Brown-Kaufman amendment, and um, Blanche Lincoln's amendment, all of which would really provide structural reforms, not just tinkering around yeah. the edges, to really make sure that this won't happen again. And from what I understand, Obama is actively working against these reforms. He went to... Um, Bernie Sanders, and h- made him soften his bill to audit the Fed. So it's just a one-time audit. It only goes back to 2007. And these other three reforms that I mentioned, you know, he's not supporting.
1: Well, I, I agree with a lot of what you say. Um, I'm, you know, I'm critical of him on Durbin. His good buddy and fellow senator from Illinois, Dick Durbin, had this what's called cramdown legislation to allow, uh, you know, judges to renegotiate mortgages, Um, and uh, they had a fair amount of support for it in the Senate. Obama was tacitly for it in 2009, but he didn't lift a finger to make it happen. I agree with you that they should break up the banks, and I tell the story, I haven't talked about it too much here tonight, of how Paul Volcker, strangely enough, became the populist in this argument, and they excluded Volcker. Uh, Suffice it to say that uh, Larry Summers is not, not thrilled with my book, um, and so I think there's a lot of uh, uh, fair criticism there in terms of auditing the Fed, um, that goes to Obama's um, uh, dislike for looking back. He just doesn't—he doesn't, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's on on uh, terrorism or other issues, he is, doesn't want the Congress distracted by going through these long hearings. I, I don't agree with that. Um, but it, the biggest insult from Obama is let's not relitigate this. Um, he, you know, he thinks people know, you know, pretty well, you know, where the Fed did well, and the Fed did extraordinarily well in 2009, to the tune of 13 trillion in guarantees that helped prevent a Great Depression. See, here's the backdrop to this. I don't disagree with you on the financial piece of this, but when Obama took office we are losing 740,000 jobs a month. If we'd stayed on that path, we would have been in another Great Depression, no exaggeration, by the end of 2009. Now we're adding a couple hundred thousand jobs a month, even if you subtract the the census workers. You know, we're still, we're not hemorrhaging, we're not losing 500, 600, 700,000 jobs a month. They stopped the bleeding. So it's, you gotta give them kind of a mixed grade on this. They prevented a depression, and yet they didn't crack down enough or break up the banks, as I, as I think they should have. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's a mixed assessment. I try to tell the story of how they came to that. Some of it has to do with the backgrounds of Geithner and Summers, uh, 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 you know, and the others, and Obama having too tight of a circle on the economy. He just didn't listen to enough people. But as I mentioned, the liberals who wanted nationalization, they got slam dunked by history. It wasn't necessary. So you can't always assume that the liberal position was the right one and the more moderate position was the wrong one. It's always going to be a mixed, it's going to be a mixed bag. Now on health care, if they had started with single payer and he'd gone to the country and said I want a single payer system, there would have been no health care reform. It's not like they would have compromised on a public option. And when you say that Michael Bennett, who I love, the senator from Colorado, got forty-four votes, nice, forty-four. They needed sixty. Okay? They were sixteen votes short. Um, so you know, and even with reconciliation, they couldn't have gotten that done. Now they got when they tried to compromise in ways that I would have favored by, say, extending Medicare down to 55, which would have been a form of a public option, they were, but the Democrats were betrayed by Joe uh, Lieberman, who had been for it uh, in, uh, as recently as September of '09, and then just pretended like he had never been for it, even though it was on tape, and threatened to filibuster, right? I have a scene in my book where I try to be everywhere, you know, and I got... Uh, uh, Lieberman's barber, a guy named Ronaldo, who works in Georgetown. And he was so unhappy in his salon that he wouldn't let Lieberman out of a chair one day until he'd given him an earful about health care. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think that uh, liberals should look at the glass half full. There's so much in this bill. And, and it, you, you got the sense that, that uh, people thought the public option was the whole bill. Well, we heard it was, a, what, a 2,000 page, like 3,000? I Can't remember how long it was. The Republicans kept talking about how long it was. It's
0: jammed with really interesting things that are gonna change healthcare. My name is Mike Keston, and my question is, you mentioned some errors and mistakes in the first year. I'd like to hear your comments, and also uh, your comments about the first Stirring Cairo speech and what happened and why nothing happened?
1: Well, on the Cairo speech, uh, it wasn't meant to have a cause and effect. It was meant to begin to reach out. And it was one of several things he did to begin to reach out to the billion Muslims. You know, the only hope that we have long term is for some form of moderate Islam to prevail. So, you know, when I asked him about it, he said, uh, well, you know, this was aimed at sort of the average Muslim in the street you know, who hears a lot of things and is not sure what to believe. And he told his speechwriters before, and I want to say what people say behind closed doors and say it to everybody's face. And so nobody was, uh, you know, everybody was a little uh, annoyed. I mean, he called out Holocaust denial, for instance, for the first time that any president has ever done that. Uh, and Israel got upset with that. He he described his, his um, Uh, failure, as he called it, in the Arab-Israeli process. He was pretty honest about how that just hasn't advanced as he had hoped. Uh, Now, in terms of uh, uh, mistakes, um, uh, you know, you have to kind of distinguish between the ones that become blog fodder, like bowing too deeply to the emperor of Japan, (laughs) uh, even though he's a figurehead and it's not, not very meaningful in any longer term way. Um, and um, fail, you know, as I mentioned, failing to use his leverage over the banks when he had it, which I think history will regard as a you know, much larger mistake. Um, and he didn't manage relations with Israel as well as he needed to. Um, he let that deteriorate, uh, but he did drive a wedge between Russia and Iran and got both Russia and China to sign on to IAEA inspections of Iran, which is... Important. The whole non-proliferation agenda moved forward in an important way. Um, so you know, I I don't. Th- uh, there were tactical mistakes. I think on the public option, he made a hash. He, he mud- tried to muddle through rather than standing for the public option or telling liberals in in the summer the the votes aren't there for a public option. Forget about it. Um, and he he chose neither. Um, and and so, I don't think he would have gotten the public option under any circumstances, but it was a tactical mistake that cost him, with his base, for him not to be clearer on that. Um, and, um, well, I'm forgetting uh, a number of a number of others. I mean, I have incidents where he doesn't, you know, he has veterans in, and he kind of inadvertently insults them. <laughs> uh, uh, so there, there are plenty of times when he's, perfectly fallible, but um, you know, I did not end up concluding, and the people in his government who had worked for Bill Clinton did not end up concluding that the wrong guy was in the chair. You know, if only Hillary had been there, I haven't heard one person say that in government, not one. I mean, they think she's a good secretary of state, but they think the right man's president, among the Democrats. During the, um, the debate for uh, passage of the care bill, the president seemingly put a premium on making it a bipartisan effort, <coughs> much to the dismay of a lot of people on the left. You spoke about the president's pragmatism, his uh, ability to see things and get them done. There are some on the left. I love what, um, what Bill Maher had said once about we need a little less hope and a little more audacity. It kind of cracked wow. me up, but it, it reveals... Um, a feeling uh, uh, that a lot of people on the left hold, uh, do you think that when it comes to things like his effort at bipartisanship that it not just it 's not just rooted in his in his pragmatism and his desire to get things done, do you think President Obama has an eye towards history when it comes to things like that? You know when I did that first cover story that I talked about when he hadn 't even been sworn into the Senate, the cover line was seeing purple because if you remember. That speech at the Democratic Convention in 2004. There were all these themes of bipartisanship, of getting beyond red and blue. He's completely failed in in that part of his, you know his appeal, um, and the country is just not ready for that. Um, and he knew early on that bipartisanship was uh, not not likely. When um, he said, when when I asked him what his biggest surprise was in his first year, he said that he thought the Republicans on the Recovery Act, on the stimulus, would be more interested in governing. He went over and met with them. Remember, this is a a recovery package that was endorsed by Martin Feldstein, who was Ronald Reagan's economic advisor, and Mark Zandi, who was John McCain's. People knew that you had to have a a stimulus if we were gonna prevent a depression. And he gave them at the front end, this was a terrible mistake, to, to your question, $300 billion in tax cuts, as one of his friends said, bad poker. He likes to play poker. This is really bad poker. And they just basically spit in his face when he went over to meet with the Republican caucus in, right after the inauguration. Never been done by a president. No Democrats. He went to meet with the Republicans. John Boehner, the Republican leader, said, nobody can vote for him. Nobody, nobody. He thought he could negotiate with them and that they could you know, have something like Reagan had bipartisanship at the beginning in, in 1981. And they just rejected it. So he got no Republican votes in the House and only three in the Senate. Uh, On healthcare, it was more complicated. Uh, He didn't expect bipartisanship. By the way, he has to seem bipartisan, otherwise he, he, he lowers himself. You know, if he doesn't at least make some bipartisan gestures, he lowers himself. He knew, quite early on, that it was not gonna be bipartisan. His mistake was he didn't push Max Baucus to give up on bipartisanship earlier. He tried to get him to, but he he needed, as one aide said to me, he needed to say, Max, it's over. And if he had done that in in May of 2009, the whole thing would have maybe moved faster. Uh, But there were a lot of liberals who said, well, why doesn't he just forget bipartisanship and bring it to the floor of the Senate where there's a Democratic majority and Harry Reid can use the rules to bring it to the floor and just pass the damn thing? And the answer is that it wouldn't have passed because you're dealing with the egos of these moderate Democrats on the Senate Finance Committee. And if you tried to go around them, they wouldn't have voted for it. That's what happened to Clinton in 1994. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of tactics and sort of inside game that's involved here. And it's complicated. I find it fascinating. Um, But it's not really about, okay, you know, we're just going to ram this sucker home at Easier said than done. Now, at the 11th hour, on the House side, they had to do that. They had to get... But that, that again, by that time, there was, no, there was no... The Republicans were completely irrelevant at the end of the process as they no. knew um, they would be by, by using the Democratic House and, and reconciliation on, on the Senate side. But I don't think that he was happy about that because he felt like, as you say, for history... It, it, it tends to go down better, major social reform, if there's some bipartisanship. But you had a political party that was bent on a policy of uh, obstruction that was working for them in the short run. It may work for them this fall. I think in the long run, they've hollowed out their party. It doesn't stand for anything except no. And uh, the problem for the Democrats, as Al Franken said, is that uh, you know the Republican bumper sticker says no. And the Democratic bumper sticker says a lot of words and then continued on the next bumper sticker. (laughs) So with that, I will continue this in the signing portion of the evening. Thank you very much.